2: Just go to ramp.com slash easy, ramp.com slash easy, R-A-M-P.com
1: slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC, terms and conditions apply.
3: The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write.
1: Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists.
2: I'm David Grosso, and you're listening to Follow the Profit. Thanks to apps like Robinhood, Acorns, and Webull, investing is more popular than ever among young people. But are they treating this wealth-building strategy like a game or a get-rich-quick scheme? When GameStop blew up, there was a lot of conversation about the fact that retail investors were inflating the company's price for no reason, and establishment investors were losing money. Of course, platforms like Robinhood took drastic measures that we at Follow the Profit probably aren't cool with, like stopping people from trading. But now young people are buying into new crypto scams every day, and it seems like Gen Z needs a lesson on investing better. Our guest today is just the guy to teach that lesson. He's the CEO and co-founder of Dan Drew Partners and the author of the new book, Legacy Investing, How the .001% Invest. His name is Salvatore Buscemi. What's up, Sal? How are you?
4: <laughs> David, that was over the top. Thank you. Finally, we get to talk. It's been a while. How are you doing?
2: Oh, I'm fantastic. You know, I'm. it's it's this world that we live in that, like, it seems like everyone's investing, but no one knows what they're doing. So it seems no, like your book is pretty timely.
4: It, everything. Everybody's speculating today. That's really what it is. I mean, that's really what I think the, the, the pandemic has really wired into our DNA, I think, that we're all – somehow gamblers to some degree or not, and whether it's a sports gambler or you're now gambling on stocks or crypto, that seems to be the mainstream way of, of, of creating a living today for many people is to day trade and speculate.
2: So how do we know how to invest or how can we learn that?
4: You know, it's interesting. I think people today, especially if you were to look at what I wrote about in my book, how the one thousandth of the top 1% invest, they look at things over a period of longevity. They want to know, they usually have impact plans, and you and I have friends in common, but they have impact plans that require them looking out 20, 40 years into the future. So they're not going to invest in anything short term at all. And a lot of the flashy, shiny objects that are coming out are mostly based for retail people to speculate on, because we're a speculative consumer-based society today.
2: Yeah, and it's really interesting because we have this new class of people, right, that just want get rich quick schemes, right? And we have our whole society, uh, you know, built around this idea that let's not do anything of value. Let's just pump and dump, get out as fast as possible, and then do nothing, which is a fundamental philosophical problem in America today.
4: Yeah, well, it's also gives them, you know, I think it causes some sort of a moral hazard internally, because everybody's been taught, especially people older than us, who have depression, era parents or grandparents were taught to follow the ways of Warren Buffett, right? And Warren Buffett, of course, had special advantages. And he does not invest like the everyday middle class American, I can tell you that right now. And he had advantages working to his favor over the past 50 years. However, when you look at things today, it seems as though the society is just decoupled from any sort of like long-term strength, waiting it out, getting things accomplished. And when you look at the the top 1,000th of the 1%, they're looking more for impact and longevity. They're looking to cure diseases. They're looking to really establish themselves and their brand as being something much more permanent. Whereas if you look at the middle class today, they're all GRQs, get rich quick. It's people who I know who have no financial background, they'll call me and they'll ask me, what do you think of GameStop? I said, I don't know anything about liquid you know, products. I don't do anything about that. And it's, it's, it's scary too, especially as how things are trading today, how many people are just fully invested into this. and? My worry is, it's just like 2008, nobody ever really tells you how much they have into it until, you know, you witness later on how much they have. And I saw this with the meteoric rise of Bitcoin in 2013. There were a lot of chiropractors who were telling me about it, like it was the most evangelical moment of their life. And then they all end it with, but I just have a little bit of money into it. And then you never hear from them ever again. It's like, well, that turned out to be a little bit more and, you know, it's sort of that, that money vaporized because it's just in our DNA today, right? We're in a very consumer-based society.
2: Yeah, it's funny, though. A lot of times there's a lot more profit-making opportunity in the long term, and nobody realizes that. And even these days, even corporate America acts that way. We worship at the altar of the quarterly report, and we're not really focused on how we're going to make money or build sustainable revenue models over 10 to
0: 20 years.
4: No, and that's a fault in society, I think. I think there's a lot more money betting on how far a stock will go than actually how profitable the company will be. And that, to me, sort of decouples where the value is in in a liquid-traded product such as a stock today. If you're putting that much money into it and your long-term savings and it's safe and secured and everything in your 401k, what happens if the house burns down? And I think a lot of people are going to find out the hard way, especially going into an administration that doesn't seem to be very pro-business. They're intimating that they might increase rates, and if they do increase rates, then look out below.
2: You know, increase capital gains taxes, specifically, that's what you're referring to. Oh, that too.
4: Asking. I mean, that's a tax as well, right? But I'm talking about short-term interest rates.
2: Well, they're going to have to raise interest rates, Sal. I mean, they're at zero. There's
4: nowhere to go here, but unless <laughs> but, but do they? But do they, David? They haven't I... for the past 20 years, Right. No, they have not.
2: That's correct. And there are places in the world that have negative interest rates. So they could go down. I guess that is incorrect. Yes.
4: So, yeah, just because the the CFA's textbook says one thing doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to happen in real life, as we've seen today. And the pandemic has been a perfect example of that.
2: So you talked about burning the house down. Let's talk about how a lot of families you know, store their value, and that's real estate. What do you think of real estate as an investment, and specifically how the top 1,000th of 1% invests?
4: I think that's a, that's a very good question. I think the same thing that we've seen with stocks today, we've seen housing be the same speculative instrument because you have these cable shows, cable channels dedicated to fixer-uppers. And so that's great because the average American can actually create wealth using single-family homes to speculate on. It's not really something that you want to have long-term rentals. I can tell you from having a portfolio of over a 1,000 single-family homes and a distressed credit fund I had at one point that those tenants you do not want to have. Um, They're very difficult to manage. So what a lot of wealthy people do is that they gear towards what we call statement assets, and this could be office towers in New York or L.A. or Orange County, what we were talking about before, or uh, it could be industrial centers like Amazon fulfillment centers or things like that where... Should the pandemic happen or occur, you know that you're going to go to bed at night knowing that your tenants are richer than you are.
2: So you don't think this is going to play out well? I I grew up in a family where we had a lot of tenants, and I can tell you it's a massive hassle. For a lot of people who are buying real estate now, I don't think they know that yet. That no, they don't. And- but they
4: also don't. No, they don't. They, they, you know. And the problem, <laughs> and you're right, because a lot of people who are systems oriented come into real estate thinking that oh, it's it's a bunch of homes in a box. You have an 80 unit residential building. What could go wrong? Well, a lot can go wrong. And you know, when you have different tenants and different tenant laws, we're starting to see right now that things are not ending well. And in New York, there's a tremendous amount of pressure there too.
2: So, if, so. Do you suggest that people hold just real estate that they live in and more long-term, you know, stable real estate like you were talking
4: about? I think the best way for people to participate today, and I really do mean this, is to partner in in private partnerships with people who are more experienced than you are. And I think when you start writing checks – as an equity investor rather than trying to do it yourself, which is what a lot of people tried to do in 2005, six, seven, got wiped out in 2008, and it's happening all over again. It's better to look over the shoulder of people who are a little more older and wiser than you are so that you don't make the same mistakes that they do because it's never just about the money. For a lot of these families, it's about about their reputation and their brand. And sometimes they don't want to be implicitly involved in the opportunities that they don't really know enough about. And if they follow the leadership of smarter people who are more established and more experienced, then that usually seems to be the way how these newer emerging families seem to insulate themselves from a lot of risk.
2: So Sal, one of the things I tend to look for is even the mention of one word or one term, which is real estate crash. And none of the media is reporting that that's even a possibility. Do you think that's incorrect?
4: Let me tell you a story. In two thousand seven eight, I was walking up and down Park Avenue with a lot of institutions and hedge funds with a tin cup out looking to raise money because I thought that there was going to be a housing crash. People didn't really believe the thesis. It wasn't until there was one cowboy firm an institution who said, you know what, we get it, we like it. They're kind of contrarian and the rest is history. I think you're going to see if it happens, it's going to be a controlled implosion. And the only way that that could happen right now is that if there's any sort of contagion where interest rates go up. And if interest rates go up even 25% basis points, for example, that's going to have a real material effect on the stock market. And I don't think people really understand that, is that rates don't have to go up. They've been conveniently low for a very long period of time. People have gotten accustomed to it. A whole generation has gotten accustomed to it. But when things turn around, history has a way of repeating itself. And it's the equity investors who are the most speculative at this point and probably the most at risk and the most levered are the ones who are going to feel the pain and you're going to see it in real estate too, but that's where opportunity is, is to be able to buy assets that you might not have been able to get into ever before, maybe class A, whatever, because of the opportunity the time is correct. So I think buying right in real estate and being with smart people with smart shoes is the best way to go, especially for emerging families who are looking to protect their reputation.
2: So how do you even find something to invest in right now? So far, you've talked about equities or stocks that, you know, they're they're kind of frothy. Real estate mm-hmm. is expensive and risks repeating the same pattern that we saw in 2008. So what is there, Sal? What is it accessible for a regular guy like me?
4: You know, for a regular guy like you, as far as the income, is something interesting that came out. And there's this convention called Peer-to-Peer Lending. And people today who really want to understand and put some savings away and get some income off of it, and I use it myself, and people in my firm have used it. When we've given bonuses out, they use it as well. But it's actually lending peer-to-peer, and you can actually get a very good interest rate and some good monthly income coming off of that. Now, the issue with that is that it's unsecured. So it's basically you're giving you know, unsecured money like a credit card to someone else. However, it's all pooled together. And you can put in investments for as little as $25. But if you know what you're doing and you're lending to the right people, it could, good, it could be a good income-producing wealth creation mechanism for people who have anywhere between $1,000 to maybe $50,000. Okay,
2: so we have to touch on the big thing that everyone talks about, crypto. You know, We have all these diverging opinions. And in fact, I've made a name for myself. By being a crypto commentator, because I'm pro crypto, but I own none of it, which is, you know, (laughs) I guess I'm the only one. You know, what is your idea? Because, you know, we hear some people saying, oh, it's a complete scam. And we see other people saying like, oh, it's going to be the only money in the future. And I'm going to guess that you're going to say the truth is somewhere in the middle. So.
4: I think it is right now. But remember, it's always the retail that pays the research and development for the institutions to understand how this new product works into the market before it's widely accepted. And that's what you're starting to see right now. And media has just allowed these corporations to, and I'm using this word, gaslight America by saying, hey, Tesla is you know buying all this Bitcoin. Oh, Walmart's going to be taking Bitcoin soon. Well, they're not. they are all these false flags. And then you have China, too which says that they're going to ban crypto because I think that they want to make sure they have a very stable digital wand coming out. My thought is is that it is not, I think, a store of wealth at this point. It's, it's a great speculative tool for people who want to speculate on it. Um, but it's also an identity investment, right? So the people who invest in crypto usually have a different personality than the guys who invest that we know invest in venture or invest in real estate, right? The crypto guys they wear it on their sleeve. It's a religion to them. They you know they drive a Tesla. They're evangelical about it. So to them it no, it's true. it's an it's a you know, and there's conferences that you and I you know know of where you get trapped in cars in a Tesla and you're just you know, you just hear this guy talk about his—he's imparting his entire digital personality onto you, quoting things and new coins and coins that he's into and everything. I like it. I think it's great. Some of the companies that we have give us coins as a as a result of an equity investment that we have into it, and that's the only exposure we have. Except that I had to make a um, make good on a bet for a hundred dollars, and I had to get a Coinbase account because the guy would insist only taking crypto because he wanted me to get indoctrinated into the whole crypto thing and start trading it like he does. And I just, you know, I haven't gotten involved in it. But I think it's going to evolve into its own. But there's a lot of competing powers and a lot of old competing powers that don't want to give up full reserve currency status yet. And I think people really need to understand that things are evolving. Things are happening much faster, especially from a socioeconomic and geopolitical standpoint. So anything can happen right now. But if you look at El Salvador as a proxy for launching this. It's been kind of rough to say the least and I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity during this frontier stage for a lot of malfeasians and maybe you know bad things to happen while before this gets buttoned down.
0: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast. Is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh
1: my god, we've summoned something from this board. This
0: is Uncanny USA.
2: He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed.
0: Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
5: AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com
3: strategic. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks... Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses.
2: I've always been shocked by people just assume that the government and the powers that be are going to be like, oh, yeah, this is a thing. No problem. Keep on going. And I think that's very naive of a lot of investors.
4: Meaning what do you mean this is going to keep on? Meaning crypto itself? Yeah, that it's,
2: oh, this is this is now a thing. Like the government's going to be fine with it. The SEC is going to be like, yeah, sure, whatever. And it seems like... Uh, The government's going to clamp down on all these cryptocurrencies sooner rather than later.
4: I I think so, too, because there's been so much money that's been made, right? Think about it. There's so much in taxes that have been made that are probably not reported. And again, I don't know, you know, I don't actively trade any crypto products whatsoever, I don't even own any. But at some point, the government's going to want their take as well. And they have to eye it, because if you think about it, what were people doing during the entire pandemic? They were day trading. You created a whole geopolitical interconnected economy of people day trading during the pandemic. And that sort of changed everybody's hardwiring. So, of course, the government's going to want to take advantage of that, I think.
2: So speaking of everyone being a day trader suddenly during the pandemic, what do you think about apps like Robinhood, which it's almost like playing a game, right? It's like, oh, I'm going to buy stocks passively on my phone and hope for the best.
4: I mean, it's a junk drawer approach, right? I mean, it's like I'm going to drink a Diet Coke with my Big Mac meal and hope for the best too, right? And then we (laughs) found out that all those dirty water hot dogs that I love in New York City with sauerkraut. Take what twenty three days off your life that I think I heard. So you know, we we all have some sort of terminal point, I think, in our lives. I just think that you know, getting getting back to that is, it's. Uh, I don't know. I mean, there's many ways to look at it. What 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 do you figure is going to be?
2: What the apps and whatnot? I mean, I think it's. Yeah, just I mean, like...
4: I, I think so. Here's what I'll say. I think if you look at and I just. I think that there is going to be increasingly more attention paid to how much dopamine these companies can get from you in order to get them addicted to their apps, just like nicotine or anything else that we've had. And Robinhood and these apps make it very easy for people to become investors because under the banner of investing and learning how to invest, it's really becoming a dopamine-addictive society for gambling. So that's my take on it. Of course, at some point, I'll be on it you know, when I have the time to do it and, you know, if I if I want to. But it is something where if you start it, you don't stop. And I think that these apps are designed to do that. And if you combine it with the fractionalization or the, you know, the financialization of everything, you can buy a slither of a share of Google for one-tenth of its price. So these apps make a lot of money off of those fees because it's those fragmented, smaller fringe investors that pay the most fees to be able to buy the lowest common denominator of the stock. So that might not be the most popular opinion, but I just put it out there, David.
2: Huh, it sounds pretty accurate to me. I'm not even going to push back on you. And That's I, why I hesitated
4: uh, at first. I was like, I didn't know we were going to go with this, but I'm like, all right. <laughs> well,
2: you know, anything goes, i am follow the prophet. You know, I've made a name for myself, Sal, asking questions that
4: make people Good. blush. So, Well, you know, no, I, I'm just giving you the the hard answer. And I'm not, I, I know you didn't invite me to be on here because I was namby-pamby. So I just want to make sure that <laughs> you know, I'm also not offending anyone either. <laughs>
2: I think if anyone's offended, they need to, you know, recalibrate their whole, you know, way they observe the world. So what do we do? What do the rich do in an environment like this? Right. They, they stare at things like real estate. Oh, it's expensive. They look at stocks. Ooh, everyone's buying them right now. It doesn't really make a lot yeah. of sense. Right. And, you know, inflation's higher than normal as well. So holding on to cash doesn't seem very prudent either. So where do they stash all those bajillions of dollars that they have?
4: You know, there's two there's two things that you're seeing right now. A lot of it is going into private companies because a lot of the wealthy have figured out that they have more control. Newer wealthy people, emerging families have figured out that they have more control investing in the private stage companies that have the possibility to go public. So they have control because they can control the basis for the price that they invest into, but also the terms, Right. Do they like the CEO? Do they don't? Whatever. Meanwhile, if Martha Stewart were to do something stupid again, her stock price would drop, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, you got to look at it from the standpoint as the middle class is absolutely brainwashed and convinced convinced that they need liquidity like oxygen. But when the wealthy have manufacturing companies that are throwing off millions of dollars a month and they're looking to put it somewhere, they have the same concern as you. But they also have uh, a little more sophistication and dexterity because they're getting into – what I call private company arbitrage, these companies before they go public, they're investing into. And they're all put together, run, and operated, managed by world-class families or operators who have done this before many times. So for them, the wealthy invest in people, they're not really looking to invest in the assets because those are the people who are going to add another layer to their legacy on the next big life sciences or whatever Uh, industry, you have, you know, uh, IPO. That's really what it comes down to. And there are real estate opportunities out there too, but they're mostly clubby types of deals. They're not widely out there known to the public because they're usually smaller. They're not usually that big. And, um, you know, with the families, there's a saying that say, mice go where elephants can't. And that's really paid off well as far as investment returns by not going where the big guys are going, but mostly following where the smaller, more nimble, more sophisticated families are going.
2: Is that a bright spot in the economy right now? Because we do live in the golden age of startups and there are a lot of exciting companies that are coming onto the scene. And while the statistics point to, you know, low startup rates, it seems like the startups that are going big are more exciting than ever.
4: They are, but remember, it's cost a fraction to start a company today than it did even twenty years ago when I got started. Today, it's almost—and I hate to say this—it's almost like there's no excuse for you not to start a side gig, right? I mean, how many people do you know who have friends who are always belly aching that they don't make enough money or whatever? And the people who control media, like you, are the ones who are really doing very well because of the fact that you're—you know—and I think that's where it goes. And I talk about this in my book, Investing Legacy, is that the lever for middle class. To achieve wealth today is media, and you can, you know, use any example you want from someone who's giving stock advice, who had left a, a Wall Street investment bank, to even someone on TikTok, to even OnlyFans. This is where we're going today, and when you follow the trends of, you know, where that's going, that could be a good wealth creation mechanism for a lot of the middle class. But as it relates to the um, wealthy who have a lot of money and they're looking to put it away and they're looking to stockpile that into other things. They have impact statements that last a much longer period of time, so they're more interested into, you know, what we call getting into the private company, private company arbitrage. Maybe it's a life co- sciences company, maybe it's a company that uh, will be acquired by another larger company in a larger industry by a multinational. These are the companies and assets that they're paying attention to because it gives them the opportunity to deploy money, but it also gives them the opportunity to really flex in front of their friends, sort of to speak, that they're a little more sophisticated than their others and. Yeah, You you know, we have similar friends in common, so they like that and they like to be known as being perceived more sophisticated, smart, because it just, you know, just like anyone else, they're addicted to dopamine too, but they have different ways of expressing it.
2: So we're about to see one of the largest wealth transfers in history, specifically from baby boomers to people like us. What do you think the lessons learned by the very top that are applicable to, you know, every family who has some form of assets, small or big, even if it's just their primary residence, How can the next generation keep, you know, (laughs) the dream alive?
4: You know, I mentioned this in the book, and it's something that we've been working on for the past year. And you're starting to see, you know, during the 1990s, you saw a lot of investment banks go public and you saw a lot of things become spread out then. And with that, you saw a lot of bureaucracies where there were a lot of conflicting maybe ideas, politics, running in institutions, none of which has really helped any of the wealthy families today because their money is going to use, but they don't really know if it's being used for anything that benefits them or benefits their wealth manager and their agenda that they have. So there's a lot of conflicting agendas in these wealth management firms that we've been seeing and hearing over the past few years. So these families want to take more control, but what they want is more experience. And so what you're starting to see and, it's it you know, there's been clubs around that have been like this forever, like Harvard Club has an investment club. You're starting to see more society-based investing where people who have shared common values, whether it's political, religious, whatever, what have you, are coming together and they're investing. Um, cabals of wealth are forming and investing into these private companies. And those are really, good. I think, going to be much more influential. You're starting to see these pools form today. You heard about it with the Archegos, with the family offices that were involved in that. But you're starting to see more of uh, solidarity among some of the families as it relates to the societies and the relationships that they have. They only wanna be with people who are like them. And I think that's where it's going today is that a lot of people are looking towards leadership in the form of mentorship and experience-based investing, if you will, so that they understand what they're doing. Maybe their parents didn't, but at least you know they have a shot. And if you look around in Asia and other investment banks, such as, I can't remember who it was, but some of them have actually started like small little day camps for people our age of wealthy people to come and spend a week in Singapore to learn, go to the Formula One, but learn you know wealth and everything. And really, it's like a primer for private equity and, and venture and real estate, which is great. So the investment banks are doing it. They're already on top of it. But I think you're going to see that percolate, especially the way society is running today. You're going to start to see people just start form cabals of wealth and influence.
2: So... Investing is supposed to solve problems, right? And uh, a lot of these big families, especially in the age of inequality, have so much money that they, of course, they want to, you know, retain their wealth, but they also want to do good. So are you seeing a movement towards the uber wealthy, towards caring about the future and maybe uh, environmental issues, social issues,
0: etc.?
4: Yeah, you know, they, the wealthy coined a term, and this is a term that's become like, a, for the 0.001%, is called impact investing. And impact investing is something that's personal to you. And in my book, Investing Legacy, I say impact investing to me means different things. I had, you know, my parents died. I'd like to set up a cause for them for educational purposes. My brother, um, I would like to set up something for more like social liberal causes for him. When what you're where things are going today is that with these families is that they're looking to brand themselves as saying, hey, I made an impact when I left this world. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean a billion trees and a continent you don't live on. But if you were to look at the stream examples of Elon Musk, he's made an impact and he is doing something for the greater of of humanity that he feels as though he's doing. But for today, what a lot of these families are doing is that they do impact investing because they want to have some sort of a metric to understand What happens? What happens if I invest in this company? Well, in life sciences, it's the ultimate of impact, right? It's you get bragging rights for life because you have cured or have helped someone maybe in an oncological, you know, in a cancer situation that your family is going to be able to say for the rest of their lives that grandma and grandpa did something different and great. And that's where they are today. And that's where you're starting to see where a lot of the investors go is what is the measurable impact to humanity? Another example of this would be Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton is a superhero today because she made an investment in an, during a an inco- time when the world came to a stop. And she that goes to her superhero legacy. Besides being a fantastic performer, she helped cure and save the world from a disease.
2: Yeah, well, you're talking about when she uh, donated money to the Moderna vaccine research. Is that correct? Correct, yes. Yes.
4: Correct, yes. Yes, exactly. Whereas if you look at the middle class... You know, they'll run like a Susan Komen thing, but they don't really know where that money's going. They don't really care because it's more emotional to them. It's just, oh, you know, whatever it is, it's, it's, it's not something that's consequential. Whereas with these families, it's their raison d'etre. You know, it's their, their, their reason for getting up in the morning and moving is what kind of an impact am I going to make uh, with the investments, with the capital and reputation that I have.
0: the biggest stars in country music will be taking the stage at our 2024 iHeart Country Festival presented by Capital One iHeart Country Jason Aldean Keith Urban Jelly Roll Old Dominion Lady A Riley Green Ashley McBride, Brothers Osborne, Walker Hayes, all hosted by Bobby Bones at Austin's Moody Center. Saturday, May 4th, stream only on Hulu, starting at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific.
2: So I want to talk about young people here for a second, because we're in a weird situation, right? Those under 40 is specifically what I'm referring to.
4: Young people. Yes.
2: Young people. Young-ish, I guess. I still like to think I'm young, right? <laughs> um we're worth 10 times less than the average baby boomer, right? And that's called into question the whole idea whether market capitalism works for young people. So, you know, that's why you see all the movements and, you know, a lot of uh, alternatives to our current system or at least reforms to it. I think everyone can agree that our system could be a lot better. Is there any way that, you know, big money people can help, you know... Initiate some sort of change, and I don't know, do something about the situation because I feel like the way we're going it endangers the longevity of market capitalism,
4: yeah, I do too. But the corollary analogy to that, David, is that this is the time in in the history of the world where there's been more individual brands made and millionaires made than at ever time before in history, And all you need literally is an iPhone, sure, so it doesn't make sense to me for someone to do that when. People are. I mean, that's really. I think what the democrat, you know, democratization, the democratization of capitalism is today is through technology, is the ability to sell things on eBay, start a business, do things like that. So I don't really understand the mindset around that because I've seen people. I, and people, I, I can tell you stories of people who I know who make millions of dollars a month online. And they do it. And they're no smarter than you and I. They just happen to have a different drive and a different value system that gets them to where they are. But they're using all the tools they can, media, technology, in order to build their own brand and create companies for themselves that are meaningful, lasting, sustainable that they can pass down to their kids. So it's something that I think it's 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 – it's a movement I don't understand because it's never been easier for anyone to become an entrepreneur today.
2: I guess it's uh, I, I, you, what you're saying is true. I guess what simultaneously is true is that housing, education, healthcare, food stuff like that is more expensive. Well that's than ever. that's
4: a different market force and that's totally that's contingent upon other things. When you look at housing, that's largely contingent upon interest rates. People don't like to talk about it, but it is, right? And when you make mortgages mortgages available to people, there's more money in the market, you have more bidders and then you have people bidding up and now we're starting to see some of these people especially the young, younger ones, the youth, you call them under 40, have buyer's remorse buying homes right now because they thought it was something that, you know, was going to be a bastion of American wealth. But that hasn't been the case over the past decade, if you think about it. It has been if your, if you're, you know, houses have gone up in value, and if you sold them and you were able to liquidate that. But the problem is, is that where do you move to next after you sell or move out? Are you going to rent? And rents are up to as well. So there is a housing crisis in this country. I think it's coming to a it's going to come to a precipice at some point but it's it's something that is it's it's a global phenomenon too it's happening all around the world and the america's always been a safe place to invest and before it used to be um, money would just come over here just because it should be here because it's easier to park and stash money. And if you know anything about Miami real estate, there was a lot of cash deals that were going on. So it became unaffordable in those areas. And then you had a lot of people who were just buying real estate from overseas for a period of time. And in New York city, you saw that in condos in the time Warner building where nobody really lived there. They all had lights on. So today you're starting to see something a little different that's running, you know, to the point is can Americans afford to live in a house anymore? And that's really what the question is.
2: So th- this wanders into politics. So we have to talk about politics. So in sure. terms of like, you know, if you were the czar of America, what would you do to incentivize, you know, or solve these problems? Let's talk specifically about the housing crisis, you know, because this is something that eats away at all of us, right? This is something we can't run away from, right? We all need to live somewhere.
4: It's not. But I also think that you have to, there's a lot of issues at play here. You have to remember, we have a lot of inflation. Inflation's man made. Um, And you also have very low interest rates. And I think if if you were to move interest rates just a little bit, I think you'd start to see a normalization here. Not everybody would lose their homes. I don't think anybody would have to lose their homes because they've had so much inflation. But I think you need to have somewhere where the middle class can benefit from fiscal policies that benefit them, not just... The top 1,000th of the 1%. And of course, everybody's seen it across the board because when you lower interest rates, you see that in the stock market. So although the housing might have gone up, I think the household wealth has gone up as a result too, as a corollary, not just in household equity, but also in stocks and bonds that a lot of people own right now. There are people I know who I never thought would have as much money as they do showing me at dinner a million dollar trading account on E-Trade. Like, I never thought that these guys would ever be able to do that. and And Sure enough, they are. So there is a lot of money there. But I think for the lower middle class, the people who are not what I consider to be the entrepreneur class in society today, and those are the youth, right? There are the people who are either entrepreneur and they have their own businesses or they're going off into institutional America doing something else. I think for the people who are the, non, you know, the non-entrepreneurial class, they're going to have difficult times because at some point wages are – just not going to be able to keep up with things the way they are right now. And that's where there's going to be a lot of problems. How you rein that in could be any number of ways. Healthcare, that's always been the third rail. But I think when you start looking at housing, that's going to be much more of an interesting play. I hate to see the day where American retirees can't afford to retire and American have to retire to like somewhere else, you know, in South America, any of the commercials we see on TV to buy a second house. And that could happen because the price of living in New York, I'm sorry, in America could hit levels where it's almost unaffordable to keep property. And it's become prohibitive in certain points, I think, for people even to catch up with it. And until things change a little bit, it's better for people to just wait, not get psychologically involved in it, because it's always dark as before dawn. I don't know what's going to happen right now. And if you look at the $3 trillion that the uh, government's looking to push through and all sorts of other I call incendiary events fiscally, you don't know where it's going to be. And maybe being a renter is probably the best bet for most Americans today because it gives them the mobility to not be locked into a mortgage. And if they lose a job or should want to take a different career path in life, it'd be much easier for them to do that.
2: Yeah, I was faced with that because I just moved to a, a new market. I moved to Los Angeles from Florida and I sold my house and I was looking at just, you know, what I would have to borrow and what I would have to buy. And basically there's no reason for me to buy. And that's antithetical to everything we push in our society because we think about permanence. We think about settling down. And it almost seems silly as someone who's from an immigrant family. I grew up in Miami. We're Cuban. You know, We're, we're all into this notion of property. But basically what I'm looking at is throwing six figures down the drain and then paying more than I would have with rent, which signals to me that maybe the market is a bit too high right now. You're
4: right. Yeah, I think you just sit back and rent. I just think you just sit back and rent because everything's cyclical at some point.
2: So raising interest rates is touchy, though, right? Because, I mean, we have gotten so used to, as you've mentioned in in this interview several times, low interest rates. The government's addicted to debt. Our corporate sector is addicted to cheap money. And really, if we were to raise interest rates, as you say, inflation would temper and things would normalize. But there would be a lot of pain from doing that.
4: Yeah, it would. It's not going to be it's not going to be easy, but what are the other what are the other choices that we have right now? I guess you can say go to war. That's one way. I mean, we've done that before, right? I mean, there's other ways. I mean, it's not a popular opinion right now. But the that is what's needed I think at this point to put the world off of this debt bench. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm not saying practi- practicality or pragmatically it's going to happen. Technically, if it does happen, it's going to cause problems. Yeah, even a little bit of leverage right now,
2: everything's so leveraged, And you even said just 25 basis points. That's nothing. We used to do that regularly just to, you know,
4: I mean, that was the Greenspan days. Yeah. In
2: a pre-financial crisis world, things moving 25 basis points was not even big news.
4: Yeah. But then again, you have homes today that have increased in value by 50, sometimes 100%. Yeah. So we're back is- to where we were before pre-2008 levels with the McMansions and the prices and things being overbought and people overpaying for things and, you know, sellers, you know, no concessions from sellers and buyers writing love letters to the sellers to buy homes. I mean, this is the buyer's market we're in. I'm sorry, a seller's market that we're in right now. And that's going to be very difficult to change. Unless people get buyers fatigued because they just are tapped out. They're too over leveraged. Six months after buying a house, they figured out, you know what, we can't really afford to have the Christmas presents that we want. Maybe this wasn't such a good idea after all. Maybe it should be something where we should rent this out or maybe we should do something different. And I think you'll see that happen because I think a lot of people got into these homes thinking that it was going to be a lifetime um, investment, but you have to think about it. Our parents didn't refinance their homes as many times as our generation did, right? Um, especially your parents, if they were Cuban, they probably had no debt. And I'm just assuming that um, yes. most no, immigrants correct. don't yeah. have any debt. Okay. So most immigrants don't have any debt. So, you know, with them, to them, that was a real stable of wealth, because for them, that was wealth. But for the Americans, the homes, do they really own it? Or are they really renting it? Think about it. If you're buying it, and you're using a you know a VHA loan, 99%, LTV and you're coming in with $50,000 on a million you know, dollar home, do you really own it or do you really lease it? And really, what's the who's really winning that equation right there? And I think to your point, I'd rather be a renter in this market than being a buyer.
2: So are we ever going to raise interest rates or are we stuck in a trap here during the Biden administration where they're going to struggle to raise interest
4: rates? Uh, well, I mean, are we in a free market right now or are we not in a free market?
2: Uh, It doesn't seem like a free market to me but you know
4: (laughs) okay so i mean it it feels like but it feels like at any given point maybe the current administration could raise rates just because they feel like it correct like they've done anything else like they've done because they feel like it
2: yeah they could yeah i mean the 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 fed is supposedly an independent institution not that it seems to act that way anymore but no it's not
4: i don't it's not. I mean, but you and I both know it's not because that's what presidential candidates talk about for the past two election cycles: is the Fed and interest rates, and even Trump was the king of debt, the self-proclaimed king of debt, and he added four trillion or two hundred years worth of debt to this country in eighteen months. So oh, I, I know. Anything, I don't think. Okay, so I don't see, and I used to say this, that I didn't see any, and I'm forty-six years old, and I said this when I was like thirty-nine you know, shooting my mouth off, raising capital, you know, trying to make a name for myself. And I said that there was no catalyst for rates to increase in my lifetime. And people looked at me like, like I said, did he say jelly? You know, what? You know, (laughs) Like, what did he say? And it was very awkward, but now people are starting to see it. But I think that the caveat to that now is that this current administration, you don't know what could happen. It doesn't seem to be as stable as prior administrations, which means that Anything can happen at any time, right? And, you know, we really don't know what's going to happen with the Fed Reserve. We don't know what kind of pressures there are with that. We don't know what's going to happen with a three trillion dollar, you know, five trillion, whatever the number is today. These are numbers I never even thought that we would be thinking about even twenty years ago. And now we're way over the brink of that. And that's gonna have consequences. So yeah, there 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 is going to have there are gonna be consequences. I just don't know when the levy breaks, but it's getting to the point now where it, it it has to, rates to me have to go up in order to keep credibility for people to keep buying bonds, and if that means taking air out of the stock market and killing some middle American investors in their four hundred and one ks, they're going to th- think so be it, right? Because that's really what they need to do. They need to keep the economy going. America's always been a safe place. Where else is all that money going to go? We don't know yet. It's certainly not all going to crypto yet.
2: So, leaving you here. So the top zero zero point one percent. Are they expecting interest rates to go up? Do they see that? To, we started this with the point zero zero one percent. Have a long term view on things.
4: Yeah, they. I think at this, they they see it as being you know prepare for the worst but hope for the best. Hope for the best meaning interest rates do increase. But prepare for the worst, meaning they're not going to increase. And so what they're doing is they're getting into more like inflation type things like fine art, you know, like things like that. Sports teams are trading because that's a huge store of wealth. Think about at the end, the uh, the NFL is a – I mean think about the brand protection, the fierce brand protection they have. Being an owner of that is a statement asset. So those have increased too as a beneficiary of interest rates. I was talking to someone in my book who – their stake went from $250 million, you know, $250 million to, I think, over a billion dollars in the last five years um, because of the fact, maybe because of interest rates, sports, maybe sports betting. But those are what the 0.001% are investing in, those types of assets that are not traditional to you and me, but to them are assets that really not only define who they are, but they also are tremendous um, you know, holders of value.
2: So, well, that was a fascinating conversation. I think I learned a thing or two from you, Sal. Where can thank we find you, out more about you? So your book is called Legacy Investing, How the .001% Invest. Hopefully, I yes. don't mess up the zeros. That's uh, You probably had to etch <laughs> that into your brain. So uh, <laughs> <Yeah>.
4: <laughs> <laughs> That's the only math in the book, though, I promise. That's the only math that's in the book. Well, awesome. Well,
2: thank you so much for making the time for me. I look forward to seeing
4: you soon. Thank you, David. I appreciate it. Thank you. Take care.
2: This was a really important conversation. If you want to understand where the world is going and how you can really profit off of what's coming next, which, of course, no one knows what comes next, but having the information to read the tea leaves always helps. If you're interested in our guest more, he has a website. It's investinglegacy.com. Again, his name was Salvatore Buscemi or Salvatore Buscemi in English. Uh, You know, Sal's someone I know, and he always gives me the inside scoop about everything that's going on in the world. I'd like to thank my team of producers, Rob, Scott, Cheyenne, and our executive producers, New Gingrich and Debbie Myers. I am, of course, your host, David Grosso. If you're enjoying the show, please give us five stars and leave us a review so that others can learn what the show is all about. Follow The Profit is a production of Gingrich 360 and iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: part of the Gingrich 360 Network.
0: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought
1: in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board.
0: This is Uncanny USA.
2: He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. <laughs>
0: The biggest stars in country music will be taking the stage at our 2024 iHeart Country Festival presented by Capital One. iHeart Country. Jason Aldean. Keith Urban. Jelly Roll. Old Dominion. Lady A. Riley Green. Ashley McBride, Brothers Osborne, Walker Hayes. All hosted by Bobby Bones at Austin's Moody Center. Saturday, May 4th. Stream only on Hulu. Starting at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific.
1: In the 90s, New York detective Louis Scarcella locked up the worst criminals. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it. Then jailhouse lawyers took aim, led by Derek Hamilton.
0: Scarcella took me to the precinct and lied.
1: 20 men eventually walked free. Now... In the Burden podcast, after a decade of silence, Louis Garcella finally tells his story, and so does Derek Hamilton. Listen to The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.